This week's episode of the Hi-Hat Film Podcast is brought to you by Silver Shamrock Novelties. It's never too early to shop for your Halloween costumes, and with Silver Shamrock's selection of skeletons, witches, and pumpkin masks, there's something for everyone. For spooky outfits at mind-blowing prices, tis the season for Silver Shamrock Novelties. Hello and welcome to the Hi-Hat Film Podcast, a comical and critical look at the world of cinema, with me, Michael Clancy. Like the disappointing Judd Apatow comedy, this is 40, episode 40, and to celebrate, we have another film up for consideration for entry into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. In the best crossover special since the Flintstones meets the Jetsons, my guest this week is fellow film podcaster Michael Meyer from the Q Filmcast, who will be submitting the final film from seminal American filmmaker Sidney Lumet, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Will Michael's experience of spending an hour talking about a particular film make him a shoe-in for the Hall of Fame? Will he be able to break Joe Morrison's ironclad grip on Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes leaderboard? Will our slightly dodgy Skype connection throw a spanner in the works of the whole proceedings? All these questions and more will be answered in the next hour or so of film frivolity. It's worth pointing out there will be spoilers going forward, but before we get into it, here's the trailer for Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Andy? I hope you're checking your messages because we have a real mess here. There's two terminated employees from your department still drawing checks. You owe me three months. I don't owe you. I owe Danielle. Do you need money? It's a serious crime. It's not as serious as you might think. What are you thinking? Don't ask, don't tell. It's a jewelry store, a mom and pop operation. <laughs> you ain't never done this before. Get a gun. You get a toy gun. There's no shooting. You do the driving, I do the thing. Right? Right. Right? Right. Stewart. She's what, 60, 70? Don't touch anything. Don't say anything. He's blind as a bat. Look at me. Blind as a bat. Easiest money we'll ever get. That's mom and dad's story. just came apart. What am I gonna do? I'm in serious trouble. Do you realize that I've been having an affair? So can I help you to seconds? Are you gonna get angry? How are we gonna fix it? Are you gonna get tough? Are you gonna hurt me? Oh, my God, Andy. Are we good? I don't think so, no! I shut up! It's too late to think. This is our future. You can do it. You can do it. Anybody can. 
And so for this episode of the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame, we're crossing the oceans and we're crossing numerous time zones to bring you my next guest who's going to be running the gauntlet of the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. Pleased to welcome to the show on this occasion, uh, Michael Meyer. How are you doing, sir? I am doing absolutely outstanding and very happy to be here. It's great to have you here. You're you're located in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe, is where we find you. Yeah, yeah, just a plane ride away. Uh, other side of the pond, Nashville, Tennessee, capital of the state. And as you pointed out to me just before we started recording, it is the uh, sister city to Edinburgh, where I'm recording from. So, I mean, it, it's meant to be. The stars have aligned. The movie gods love this project because looking into, uh, just the other day, I was looking around on the internet, something about Nashville, and every city in the States has what they deem as a sister city in Europe. And ironically enough, Edinburgh, Scotland is the uh, sister city of Nashville, Tennessee. Can you believe it? It's the perfect fit. It's the perfect fit. So you're you're the host of the Q Filmcast, which is uh, it's my go-to film podcast uh, when I'm not listening to all, all the back episodes of my own one. Uh, for, for the uninformed and the uneducated listening to the show, tell us a little bit about the Q Filmcast. Yeah, absolutely. Sure thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, walking out of our local theater here, the Bell Court, they saw a lot of independent films and things, and uh, some movie buddies of mine came out of there, and, and it, after talking about this on several occasions, we basically just said, hey, you know what? We spend all this time walking out of this theater talking about movies. Let's just do it. Let's let, uh, you know, the rubber meet the road and develop our own show. And that's what we did about, uh, coming out a little over two years ago now. And uh, writing the format for what we wanted to do, we decided that, you know, it would be kind of hard for all five of us, because it's a big cast, for all five of us to go to the, to the movie every week. So we hashed out an idea that you know, the world could use a show focusing on Netflix instant movies. Um, you know, I mean, I, I would think that more people thumb through Netflix on a given night than they do look at their local uh, listings for what's at the theater, right? Absolutely. So uh, we devised the plan to come up with a podcast, the Q Filmcast. Q as in, um, you know, what's in your queue. And ironically, the minute we developed the show, they changed this to my list. So, yeah, but we kept it as a Q Filmcast as a nod to once to do Netflix queue. You know, it just kind of fell into place. The guys I do the show with, I host it, but you have James Hart, Sub Savage, Matthew St. Hoodie, we call him that for various reasons. <laughs> uh, we have our producer, Adam, and Max Gumbo Johnson. So there's five of us. We meet up every week. We pull a film from Netflix, go around the table, kick it around, give our review of it, and then to round it out, every week, we have a top three list based on the movie that we reviewed. For example, last week was Your Next, and we had top three kick-ass chicks. Who was your number one kick-ass chick? Uh, what was it, actually? I think it was Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> yeah, that's a good pick. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, pantheon pick there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's kind of what we do. And um, we've had a lot of success with it. We uh, started to get picked up by radio stations. I think we're on, like, 15 stations across the state now, so... You know, uh, we, we have a bit of an audience, and we just have a lot of fun doing it. It's not pretentious or highbrow, at least we try not to keep it that way. It's literally five guys meeting up in a studio to talk about what one of us forced the others to watch on Netflix. That's the show. <laughs> and it's a really lively discussion. That's what, one of my favorite things about it, is uh, the lively debates that you uh, you gentlemen uh, get into on a weekly basis. And you do a very good job of reining in uh, your, your four co-hosts. I mean, it's a, a thankless job, but you do it very well. Oh, you do sense that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, we get a sense of that, and uh, uh, you know, in a in a similar sort of way that we, do we do on on this show here. You know, I, I, you do such a wide variety of shows, such as the the nature of just picking films off of Netflix. So you can pick these sort of. Uh, really well-renowned and highly regarded films like There Will Be Blood and then you can do silly ones like Team America and maybe like a, a lesser-known oddity like Frank, which was one of your more recent episodes. So I think it's terrific. Yeah, Frank, and by the way, I want to point this out to your listeners because I, I can't be the only one out there who thinks that you sound exactly like Michael Fassbender. Did you know this? <laughs> it's never been pointed out to me before, but uh, I'll thank you very much, sir, for uh, bringing it up for, for everybody to hear. Yeah, well, when you said Frank, made a note to myself to tell you that the first time I listened to, to your podcast, I thought, I didn't know Fassbender did this sort of thing. <laughs> uh, if only. I mean, I don't, I'm not quite the box office draw that he is, but maybe someday. Yeah, give it time. Just starting out. Well, I mean, obviously from the, the Q Filmcast, you are you are a man who knows his, his cinema, but just... Um, we, we run a few challenges with all the guests here on the podcast, and I, I'd like to kick things off with our hi-hat film questionnaire, if, if we can move on to that. Yeah, we certainly can. Fantastic. So the first question that I always ask my guests is, what was the first film that you saw or can remember seeing at the movie theater? Uh, I'm going to talk a lot of tonight about films that uh, impacted me, that affected me, and I think, uh, because the film we're going to talk about later certainly did that, but I think the first film that I remember because it And what was it that freaked you out about it? Uh, I really don't know. I mean, uh, I think my dream space was you're, it's always pretty open when you're five years old. So what was fantasy became very real, and Captain Hook's book, I think, uh, did it for me. I, I literally ran out of the theater. That's <laughs> the first time I remember uh, seeing a movie. I do. Yeah, a, a traumatizing event that has stuck with you to this very day. Okay, uh, your, your, your top five directors, if you please. Yeah, you know, you asked me this question, Michael. That's a tough that's a tough response because you can't put everybody on the list, but you can't leave everybody off the list, so it's tough, you know? Yes, it's a very it's a tough one. I, I'm looking at what I wrote down and I'm just gonna let Faith tell me which ones to pull out because I have a list of like twenty. Uh, I'm gonna talk I'm gonna talk about directors that for the most part right now are just on my mind. How's that sound? Sure thing, sure thing. Um P. T. Anderson is always on my mind. He can't not be on my mind. This is a powerhouse director. It's almost like a national holiday for me when something comes out. Always P.T. Anderson. I love Christopher Nolan. I love the big, bold, bombastic ideas that he puts on screen. Big storyboards. Always overreaches his grasp just a bit, but holds it together. I'm always excited to see a Nolan film. Uh, one director I want to give a nod to is Jeff Nichols. The film I think of is Take Shelter. Oh, yes, of course. I love Take Shelter. Yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting film. Very nuanced. One that just left me a bit rattled. And I've gone back and I've watched Shotgun Stories. He recently did Mud. Yes, yes, um, yes. I think he's only done three films, but just because of Shotgun Stories, and especially Take Shelter, I'll always go see a, a, a Jeff Nichols film. And, uh, I mean, Michael um, Shannon is always so watchable, and he's just terrific in that. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, I like Anton Corbin trilogy. Here's, here's some great films here. Um... Most recently, once again, a tie into the movie we're going to talk about, uh, A Most Wanted Man. Yeah, yeah, that was a really strong one from last year. Yeah, uh, The American and uh, the Joy Division bio, biopic. Uh, 
Uh, control, right? Control, yeah. And I want to round it out with David O. Rumble. Okay, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just want someone who's going to take words on a page and get the actors to say them with complete gusto and flair. And that's what a David O. Russell film is to me. So I'm going to go for those five. Terrific. Uh, a really, really strong list there. I like that an awful lot. Let's uh, let's transition seamlessly on to your, your top five actresses then. Oh, I love the ladies. <laughs> uh, I have about 40 on this list. Once again, I'm just going to follow what I think jumps out at me. I think I'm going to go across the board on this. I have a thing for Dame Judi Dench. Oh, sure. Sure. National treasure that is Judi Dench. It has to be. <laughs> I remember watching Notes on a Scandal. Uh, you remember the film from, what, four or five years ago? Yep, yep. Very affected by that, that role and that performance. Became a Judi Dench fan. Went back, seen everything else. And most recently, watched Philomena the other night. Oh, she is terrific in that. I mean, that's a really strong one. Yeah, I mean, just, just a fantastic actress. Really eats the screen, you know? Along the same lines, I'm going to go with um, Jessica Chastain. Oh, yes, yes. The world needs more gingers. Come on. <laughs> well, as someone who is engaged to a redhead, I have to agree with you. <laughs> yeah, I like Jessica Chastain. I think she's kind of the new, the, the new upper class, so uh, big fan there. Uh, don't care. I'm going Jennifer Lawrence. I could look at her all day on screen. She amuses me. She uh, she's a convicted actress. And um, two David O. Russell films that just floored me. We're talking about Silver Lining Playbook and uh, American Hustle. I love her in everything. What can I say? Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, I like Amy Adams. Yeah, she she's uh, often she's on my list certainly. And uh, my oddball pick for you is Kristen Wiig. Oh, okay, yeah. Fantastic. How do you feel about her um, pitching up in the new Ghostbusters? Not happy about it. No? Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I have a Max Gumbo Johnson on our show. He's pretty depressed about this. He's a, gum, he's a Ghostbusters connoisseur. That's a time capsule film for him, and he's all beside himself about this female cat. Mm-hmm. But hey, if it has Wicked, I'm going to go see it. I love her face. I love her voice. I find her incredibly amusing, so... Max would say he hates that idea, but the more I think about it, the hell with it, put her in Ghostbusters. I don't care. Yeah, I, 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 I trust them to make it work. I think they'll do something interesting with it. Yeah, it'll be interesting, all right. <laughs> are, are we going to have a female Slimer? That's what I want to know. That, <laughs> that remains to be seen. That's a really... I hadn't even considered that. So, uh, on that note, moving on to your uh, top five actors, then. Okay, let me see here. Uh, I'm going to go Michael Shannon. Classic. Why don't we just say Steve Martin? I mean, you you can't go wrong with a bit of Steve Martin. No. All right, fantastic. That's a real eclectic mix right there. And again, a, a, names like Hoffman and Daniel Day Lewis they come up a lot when I when I pose these questions. Uh, what about your favorite comedy? Uh, the Jerk. The Jerk, Steve Martin. I almost peed the first time I seen it, and uh, I would pee tonight if I watched it. It's that funny to me. It's that cutting. And it puts Martin on a pedestal right where he belongs. Absolutely fantastic. What about what about sci-fi? Alien, all the way. 
Alien all, alien all the way, absolutely. Sigourney Weaver. I had a submission into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame alien a couple of episodes back, so that's one we've definitely celebrated on this show. In its proper place, for sure. Yeah. They need to get it on Netflix so you guys can talk about it. Yeah, we, yeah, we actually would. We would. That'd be a good conversation. Uh, what about favorite animated feature? Are you a fan of animated films? Um, you know what? There are no Cheerios in my backseat. I don't have children. I have a wife. So maybe that has something to do with my lack of knowledge when it comes to animated features. I just don't see a lot of to be honest with you, Michael. And, and that, this was the one I had the hardest time with. Um, I can tell you ones that I recently have seen and didn't hate. How's that sound? <laughs> That's as good as any, yeah. I'm just going to say I didn't hate up. I, I think the first ten minutes of Up is uh, remarkable, but I don't think it quite lives up to the, that strong opening. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you know, once again, I, I love films that really dig and burrow themselves into me, uh, you know, on an emotional level. And for an animated film, it, that did come in pretty hot like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that impressed me. I also like The Untouchables, not The Untouchables, The Incredibles. Yep. That's fun with that one. And why not Wreck It Ralph? Hey, there you go. Yeah, I, I do like it. Yeah, I think you're a closet animated fan. Wreck and Ralph. I'm gonna go straight up and say Wreck and Ralph. I did like that. So moving on to the music, then, uh, what about favorite soundtracks or scores? Is there a particular one that stands out to you? Uh, another tough question. You know what? I'm gonna go with kind of a guilty pleasure pick here. I remember leaving when you, when you leave a movie, whether you love it or hate it, but you want to hear it again. I think that's a pretty good nod to a good score or a good uh, you know a good soundtrack and for me I think it was the first time I ever heard Cigarettes and that was in the um, Cameron Crow film Vanilla Sky which I unapologetically did like um, I love I love that soundtrack I thought that that was a great medley of what made the film work and what stood alone on its own as a soundtrack and I really still love that soundtrack you have everything from Red House Red House Painters to um, Bob Dylan to uh, Cigarettes to uh, you know Radiohead and all this. To me, that's a great soundtrack for me. I may be alone. I don't know. Yeah, it's a film that definitely divides people. I haven't seen it yet. It's still on my my cue list. I've got some some friends that absolutely love it and some friends that absolutely despise it. So I, I'm really looking forward to getting around to watching that someday. I would like to hear your opinion on it. You know, it's one of those that. It automatically draws a hard line for some reason, and I don't take it that seriously. I, I watch it, I enjoy it. Um, I don't want to feel like I, I have to hate it because everybody else does, you know? What is one film you wish was never made? E.T. the Killer. <laughs> Why? It hurt my soul. <laughs> uh, I think I think you can just leave it at that. Say no more. I think I think we know I think we know what you're getting at. Well, we, we actually reviewed it on the Q Filmcast, and to this day, 
it's probably our most divided review. And by the way, go to theqfilmcast.net. Not, not anything else, just .net. That's our catch-all. I forgot to mention that earlier. If you go there, you can thumb through, I think it's about six months ago, we reviewed each killer. And I won't get into it. Go listen to that episode. Now, I explain in detail why that movie hurt my soul. I wish I'd never seen it. I'm going to go and check that one out. I think that's going to be an interesting listen. We started with your, your, your first trip to the movie theater. What was the last thing you saw in the, in the movie theaters? Well, you know, as previously stated, when uh, P.T. Anderson puts out a movie, I'm there, and that was Inherent Vice. Did you enjoy it? Yes. I've seen it. I really liked it. I've, I've been trying to get to go see it again. I feel like it's going to be one of these ones that just gets better with repeat viewings. But I, I haven't had a chance to see it a second time around yet. You know, I'm not a big homer when it comes to them. If I, if I think the film isn't working or I'm not enjoying it, I'm not just going to stay on this, the PT and the bandwagon. That film, I remember thinking, I sh- all the parts here are telling me I shouldn't like this film, but why do I? I don't know what it was, but I just remember liking it. Once again, and I think that's just a testament to what he can do. When you can take that and somehow make me like it, I don't know what's happened to Dr. Scene. You're speaking <laughs> to me on some level. Yeah, yeah, he's. it's very hard to put my finger on sometimes with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, just what is so great about his films i had a hard time doing it with the master as well i had to do a radio uh, review for it and a lot of it, the review was just kind of like this is really good but i can't really express why <laughs> just go see it and as a film reviewer it's not it's not the best piece of advice but it was the, the best i could come up with at that time yeah it's about all you can do all right excellent well a, a comprehensive answers there for the questionnaire i think uh, we're ready to face the final hurdle now which is the the legendary internet favorite game attack of the rotten tomatoes as we'll call it uh, out of respect for the side of the atlantic ocean that you're on okay <laughs> so for people that don't know, uh, who haven't heard before, it's a higher or lower game based on a particular category or genre of film, based on their score that they received from the website uh, RottenTomatoes.com, which compiles uh, various film reviewers' uh, feelings about the film into a handy percentage. I'm sure you're familiar with the website. I don't yet, I am, absolutely. We reference it every week in our show. Absolutely. So I'm going to give you a choice of three categories to pick from, and you'll get the uh, you'll get a potential score out of ten from one of those categories. I'm hoping there's one in particular uh, that you'll pick from this, but I think that will become clear in a moment. But your your choice of categories you can have uh, found footage films, so films that, that adopt that kind of motif. You can have movies where Brendan Gleeson dies. He's uh, apparently been killed in quite unpleasant ways uh, in quite a lot of films. Or you can have films that have featured on the Q film cast over the years. I might have a a shoe in right there. Yeah, I can't decide if this is going to be really easy for you if you pick that one or if it would be too difficult for you. Uh, I don't know. We'll see if I feel like showboat. Let me think about that. All right. You know what? Um... Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll toot my own horn. It, it, it might even be more embarrassing if I can't get it right. For entertainment, 
entertain to tell you. Let's go with movies that are in the cute film cast. How's Fantastic. I was hoping you'd go for that one. So, just to give you give you an idea, the highest score we've ever had is a 9 out of 10. The lowest score we've ever had is a 5 out of 10. So, anywhere in between there, I'd say you're doing okay. Alright, let's do this. Okay, so I know that you've seen all of these films, obviously, because you've covered them on your own show. Your starting point is going to be the Billy Bob Thornton comedy Bad Santa, which starts with a, a fairly strong 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that's your starting point. Your next film, which is a film I remember you severely disliking, and one that I take exception to because I quite liked it, uh, was Snowpiercer. Oh, you do recall, yeah. Um, yeah. You weren't a fan of Snowpiercer, but did it score higher or lower than 78% on Rotten Tomatoes? Gosh, this is a fun game. I forgot how interesting this game is. Uh, I'm going to say it scored lower. It was a little more rotten. Well, unfortunately, the people on Rotten Tomatoes agreed with me more than you. It came in with a very strong 95%. Are you serious? <laughs> yep, yeah, I'm afraid so. I, my theory is not that many people reviewed it because it didn't get so wide a, a release. But that is oh. a... It's a high score, and it's a, the worst possible start for you. But you can, you can, still, you can still claw it back. So... So, 95% with Snowpiercers, where are you at now? Your next film is Team America World Police. Do you think that scored higher or lower than 95%? Lower. Yeah, yeah, I'm, and perhaps shockingly so, but with 77%, Team America came in there, so... Well, you know, it's much work that I've done with IMDb. Have fun with it, and it's funny how you think they're brilliant when you agree with them, but <laughs> in the end... In the end, it's not a very accurate scale at times, you know. Yeah, there's, it's not an exact science, it has to be said. Your, your next film up is uh, another one that I, a, a film that I really, really enjoyed, was the uh, Jim Jarmusch, Johnny Depp star, Dead Man. And your score is 77, yeah. higher or lower than 77%. Oh, that, you know, that's a tricky one. I think that's right on the line. I, I don't see a big swing from 77, but... I think I'm going to go lower just a bit. You say lower just a bit. I, you were right to say that there, it, it was pretty close. There was a difference of 6% between the two of them. And coming in at 71%, you were right to say lower. So you're two for three right now. Yeah, you set them to come back? I think it's on. I can feel it. So next up is a, a, another film that I, I really, really loved. Uh, and I haven't had the chance to listen to this episode yet, but I can't wait to. It's uh, 13 Assassins. Uh, did you know that Takashi Miki is only five foot four inches tall? I did not know that, actually. <laughs> There's a little bit of trivia for you. And if you listen to that episode, that's going to be funny. That will be funny later. <laughs> I'll download it tonight and make sure I give it a listen. So 71% oh, yeah. is, is your score. So higher or lower do you think for 13 Assassins? Uh, yeah. That's another tough one. Uh, I'm going to say a little higher. It's not just a, a little higher, Mike. It's actually a lot higher, ninety-six percent for oh, for that. But uh, you know, you, you you don't have to guess. You don't have to guess the margins. You just have to get the direction, and you got that right. So there you go. Three out of four so far. You're you're cooking with gas now. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's hot right there. <laughs> well, let's see how you do with this next one. It is uh, Dustin Hoffman's one of his most uh, famous films, The Graduate, and ninety-six okay. percent is your score to beat. Uh, that's another one. <laughs> it's in the 90s. Uh, I'm gonna say higher. I'm gonna say higher than that. 
It was all going so well, but I'm sad to tell you, 88% for the graduate. Are you kidding me? It's it's hard to believe, I know. You see, that's the problem with this this uh, this game, Michael. You're you're torn. You let your uh, you let your personal emotions get invested, and you start saying what you think it should be rather than what it is. Yeah. Well, there's more than just judging whether it's good or not. It's ta- you, I guess you have to take into account how long it's been out for, how many people are going to review it. You know, I guess that all right. that comes into effect. So there's a real, there's all so many factors to consider. I can sympathize. I played this game myself uh, a, a couple of weeks back, and I, I didn't have a fun doing it. It has to be said. I got greedy at the end. I should have, I should have thought a bit harder about the graduate. I got greedy. Well, you're, you're three three for five at the moment, so there's still time, you know, you could still end up with a very respectable score. So, 88% is your score to beat. Your next film up is Reanimator. Uh, I'm going to go lower. 94% for Reanimator. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> I'm afraid so, yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen Reanimator, but I take it from that you weren't a big fan. Put that on the poster. Well, yeah, and I like this because I, I'm not allowed to curse on my show because it's on the radio and all this, but uh, I like I can say how I actually felt about this. It is a piece of shit. It's fun, but uh, are you serious? It's like, what, 90% you say? 94%. That's astonishing. I, I, I reject that. I reject <laughs> it. I think I should get a, some kind of a do-over on this, but if you say so, I'm afraid. I there are no do-overs to be had on this game, but a uh, nice try. So you, you, you're you're three out of six right now, so you've got, let's see, one, two, three, four more to go on this. Your next film up, it is one of your one of your favorite directors, it is P.T. Anderson. The film is There Will Be Bloods. You, you gave the film ten bastards in a basket out of ten on your show, but uh, does it score higher than 94%? Um... Everything inside me um, wants to say yes, right? I have to say yes. Although I may crap the bed on the, on the game here uh, because I don't set myself up for a fail, but I'm still going to go higher. You're going to go higher. There was 3% yeah. between it, and with 91%, I'm afraid, I'm afraid it is lower. Yeah, but you know what, Michael? Michael, I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with this because you can't take that movie down a notch. I have to go always higher with that. That was a convicted a convicted response. I'm okay with that. That's good. I'm glad you've made your piece. I mean, it is a, an absolute classic, and it is, uh, again, it was the latest film to be conducted into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So, I mean, it's doing okay. It doesn't need, you know, it doesn't need to be higher than Reanimator, but there we go. <laughs> See, that's my point. I, I couldn't I couldn't mumble the words lower when it came to that movie. No. Let's move on. All right, so next up is uh, the uh, Rafe Rafe Fiennes uh, adapting a Shakespearean play Coriolanus and 91% uh, is the score to beat. Uh yeah, um I know we have something that we call the Coriolanus swing on our show. <laughs> okay. We call it the Coriolanus the Coriolanus swing because it was the biggest difference between Rotten Tomatoes from what the critics liked and what the users liked. It was like 50 points between them. Oh, really? One of them, yeah, we call it the Coriolanus Swing. I can't remember if it was one way or the other, uh, 
Oh, oh, it's the critic score. Yes, sorry, I, I should have made that clear. This is the critic scores. This is the critic score. Okay. Taking into fact that the Coriolanus swing, I'm gonna go lower. I think the critics went lower on it. With 93%, Coriolanus came in 2% higher than There Will Be Blood. I absolutely suck at this game. I suck uh, at my own show. <laughs> You you have two questions left. You got two films left. You're on three right now. So if you get these two right, you will only have tied the lowest score in uh, Attack of Rotten oh, Tomatoes no. history. So uh, okay. it's 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 all to play for, I guess. So your next one up is, um, and I know nothing about the film other than you've covered it on uh, on your show. It is uh, Ravenous. Yeah, Max Gumbo Johnson hated this movie. I know that. Mm -hmm. I think I was uh, somewhere in the middle on it. Uh, what do I have to beat? 93%. There is no way that movie is higher than 93%. It has to be lower. It has to be, and by a considerable margin, 43% it came in at. So, there you go. You got four. You got one left. The pressure is on. Oh, God. Okay. Your final film... And again, it's a film I know very little about, but perhaps you can give us a bit of extra information on it. Is Child of God? <laughs> have you seen this film? I have not. Please watch this film. Just, I don't want to be. I, I want someone else to have watched this film with me. I want to know if there's at least one other person out there who has watched this film. You need to watch this. One. Okay, I'll tell you what. I in the next week or so, I will watch it and I, I'll, I'll tweet you my thoughts on it. Uh, it's not a family affair, let me tell you that. Okay. But the the big question on everyone's lips is, does it score higher or lower than 43% from the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, that, I think it's right there at that line, so it's... It is close. It be, yeah, it wouldn't be stupid to say higher, it wouldn't be stupid to say lower. I'm going to say lower, though. With a score of 38%, it is lower... Oh, yeah. So you round up with a final score of 5 out of 10, which is, yeah, yeah, it ties you on right there, right there on, on, the, on the baseline there for entrance into Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes. So congratulations, I guess? I wouldn't say that. I think that's a disaster. <laughs> I, should have been, I should have been top of the heap. These are the movies I just recently reviewed, for Christ's sake. Oh yeah, um, it, and that is the 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 agony of this game. I mean, when I played it, it was films from the that had been in the Hi Hat Hall of Fame, and uh, I did. I I think I got six. So you know, I'm, I'm right there with you. I feel your pain. Yeah, yeah. Considering the fact that we start out all of our episodes with, guess what? Uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave this film, and I say it <laughs> yeah. just subconsciously, subconsciously be in my mind somewhere. But hey, there you go. Who knows? Okay, well, let's um, put aside that um, that un unpleasant business and let's move uh, swiftly on to the main event, the reason why we're here. Uh, it's for your submission for the, the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. Uh, you've chosen a really, really interesting film, Mike, uh, to talk about. It is the 2007 Sidney Lumet film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead.
intrigued by your choice because you know I whenever I get a guest on we always I always give them complete and utter control on the film they pick I don't really like to have very any input on the film that they go with and usually it's something where where they're they're picking an absolute classic one of those films is you know the sort of pinnacle of cinema and sometimes they pick a film where it's maybe like a childhood favorite and just judging on the year it's released I'm assuming that you weren't uh, you know, it wasn't a childhood favorite for you. So I, I'm really excited to, to get into this with you and find out why you picked this film and, and all of that. But uh, why don't we kick things off if you can just give us a summary of the plot? Well, first of all, Michael, I'm, I'm seven years old. Oh, oh, I see. I, I, I do beg your pardon. I'm a very mature seven. I was a child when I saw this. Uh, no, obviously not. Uh, yeah, you know what? When, when, uh, when you asked me to pick a film, I'm glad you brought up the fact that this is a little outside the realm of what you might expect because I had the classics lined up. I had ones that I could have thrown out that would have been obvious. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to pull out a film that I still thought was important, that I thought had landmark qualities, that I thought had time capsule qualities for various reasons, because of who's in it, because of certain aspects of the film that really stand out, um, and things like that. So I'm glad that you like this pick. Um, yeah, you want me to tell you what I think it's about then, uh, the plot? Please do, yes. The way I would describe this film is it's a story about two desperate brothers, one played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the other played by Ethan Hawke. Uh, they devise a pretty ridiculous plan to knock off their family-run jewelry store as a cure-all for their problem. Hank, the younger brother, uh, played by Ethan Hawke, plays the divorced father. He's constantly harassed by his bitter ex-wife, played by the great Amy Ryan, by the way. Mm, she is um, really good. Yeah, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Gone uh, gone, Baby Gone was nominated for an Academy Award. She almost played the same kind of character here, very, very bitter, jaded. That is the wife of Ethan Hawke in the film. So when you meet him, you sense automatically that, you know, life isn't good for him. He's got this woman chewing on his ass endlessly about child support. He has a daughter who uh, is already showing signs of disdain for him basically because the mother does nothing but badmouth him. Uh, the other brother, played by Hoffman, he plays the character of Andy. He's more accomplished. Uh, you sense, right? By the way, I don't know if we want to get into spoilers, too much scene talk right now, but that might be one of the best opening scenes in a movie ever. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? I do, I do.
Let's sell the jewel. The insurance company is going to take care of mom and dad. And uh, Seymour, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hoffman's character actually says, uh, everybody wins, no one gets hurt. And eventually you'll find out that nobody wins and everybody gets hurt. But that's the basic premise of the film. It's a heist film built around a family in complete and utter turmoil. And um, so that's how the film starts out. But things obviously don't go as planned. Uh, the blind is a bad worker who's supposed to man the store on the day they pull off the heist isn't there. Hank, played by Hawk, who's supposed to be alone and under no circumstances have a gun, well, he shows up with an armed lunatic friend. And to top it all off, the mother of the, of the two uh, boys is actually working at the store that day. So they're going to rob a store that their mother happens to be working in that day with an armed lunatic who's not supposed to have a gun, crash it through the door with a gun. So, you know, here you go. Um, but as the events unfold, and before the jewels are even in the bag, both mom and the friend are dead. Andy and Hank find themselves fragmenting in every direction. Their old retired father, played by Finney, is on a desperate mission to find out what happened and why the hell some punk from Red Hook hijacked his business. Uh, it doesn't stop there, though. Andy's love-starved wife, played by Comey, soon reveals that her and Hank are, are having an affair, and after a key piece of evidence is found in the getaway car, a link to the brothers is now a foregone conclusion. But, in another desperate attempt to pull themselves out of the crushing hole they've fallen into, Andy comes up with one more desperate plan, one that may just have them on their way to hell even before the devil knows they're dead. No one saw you talking with Bobby? No. Uh -uh. I didn't know nobody saw you here. No, come on, it, was, it was crowded. It was busy. No, no. It, did he rent the car with you? Did he what? Did he rent the no, fucking car no, with you? No, no. Or did he, uh, well, you picked him up? Yeah, at his house. Did anyone see you there at his house? Anyone see you at his no, house? No, no, no. Nobody saw you at the no. house? No. Did, did you clean the car? Did you wipe the car down? Uh, I told did you wipe the car down? Uh, do you leave anything in the car? No, of course not. We're probably okay. If they don't connect the car to us, we're probably okay. That's what I was thinking. Go back to work, try to look normal. I'm so sorry, Andy. I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't think I can get through this. Shut up. I love her so Just much. shut the fuck up. If you had to take somebody out, why couldn't it have been him? So a wonderful synopsis there. I think you, you really hit all the points to it. I think... Um, one of the important things we should say about the film is it kind of adopts non-linear storytelling and it, it, the, the, the key scene which it opens on, which is this big heist scene, is uh, uh, repeated several times uh, through the multiple perspectives, uh, similar to like they did in Rashomon. So it, it, it adopts all sorts of really interesting techniques. Um, did, is this a film that you saw for the first time in 2007 in the movie theatres? Yeah, I went to the theaters to see this, yeah. And is it a film you've returned to uh, many times since then? Uh, 
it was a film that the minute I could buy it on DVD, I did. Uh, I probably watched it five times. How's your reaction to it change with multiple viewings? Well, you know, it, it hasn't changed. It's strengthened. I don't think anything's ever lost on this with me when I watch it. Um, you know, my initial reaction uh, when I first watched it, if I could have thought out loud, was that was Mastercraft filmmaking. That, that was my initial reaction leaving the theater in 2007. It felt like it, it looked like it, and it certainly left me thinking just that. Uh, nothing's changed from doing the viewing. As a matter of fact, and perhaps it has something to do with the sad irony of this film in regards to the late Philip Seymour Hoffman and the loss of Sidney Lumet, I think it's become more profound when I watch it. I mean, it's certainly more profound, Michael, this year than when I watched it last year, when you take into effect the passing of Hoffman, because there's irony here with that, sad irony. No one will never see talents like LeMay and Hoffman again. Uh, it's really compounded in this film. And um, especially when you get the best of them, which to me is clearly on display before the devil knows you're I mean, when you talk about Sidney LeMay, I mean, if you look back at his uh, his resume, you know, 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Serpico, The Wiz, and, and you throw up, you know, this is this is him at his best. How, why does this fit in so well with such a strong body of work in your mind? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I think it fits out with a strong body of work for him. You know, this is his last film. And some things do kind of get better with age and time. And I think that this was just a culmination of years of work of figuring out how to get actors, which is his calling card, by the way. I was able to actually, for the first time, watch the um, bonus material on the DVD. I hadn't watched that yet. And this gave me an opportunity last night to go back and do just that. And his, his legend basically is from the stage. But as a filmmaker, every actor will tell you for some reason, he was able to convey to me perfectly how to walk the line between almost over the top, almost too emotional, almost too much, to perfectly place gut punch with every scene he had me in. And I, that, that's a calling card of this. And I think that this rises to the top because when you look at what makes LeMay, LeMay work, strong cast, strong cast. I mean, different actors moving in and out of sequence with each other. Actors able to grab dialogue and pound it home with conviction. Um, this displays everything that makes him legendary as a director. I think this more than any other film. This and maybe Dog Day Afternoon. So this really rises to the top for the name. And, and you've spoken a little bit about the the construction of it and like the looking back on it retrospectively when you consider the passings of the director and it's uh, one of its main characters. I mean, what what is it about this film? That, that you love? Is it a love for this film? Is it an admiration for this film? I mean, what what is it about this film that you that you feel so strongly about? Well, you know, for me, I'm going to go back to the word that I tossed out earlier, which is affected. When a movie affects me, I love it. And when it buries deep inside of me um, and hits some kind of nerve, uh, I, I really, really gravitate to that kind of work and it doesn't it doesn't matter what kind of drill bit that you use you can use comedy i mean the jerk affected me because it was just so well constructed and it did exactly what it was supposed to do which has made me laugh for years this film i'm going to put in the same kind of category it's a different drill bit but it still went deep and that's that's because it affected me on such an emotional level i love this film because that's what it did it reached 
dark theater. You walk into the sunny sidewalk, and um, you just feel like there's a clear break. You feel completely different from when you bought the ticket to when you walked out of the theater. And that's this is an example of what uh, of a film that did that for me. Um, I think that's why it's a great movie, and that's why I love it. This was sheer love of the medium, too. The camera work, the director, the acting, the delivery, the endless gut punches that the film puts at you. It's a powerful movie. And uh, once again, I walked out and thought, that is complete mastercraft. I love it because it's a convicted film that overreached the sum of its parts. And that's hard to do for any film. I mean, overreaching the sum of its parts. I mean, when your parts are Philip Seymour Hoffman, Ethan Hawke, Marissa Tomei, Albert Finney, Michael Shannon, Amy Ryan, yep. I mean, to, to then say that it's more than the sum of its parts, that is a, a bold claim to make. But uh, it's, it's. I was ready for you to bring that up. I was waiting for you to say, but the, the parts are outrageously <laughs> um, grandiose. Yeah, but still, when you walk out and you think you're going to get great and superb, great and superb and utterly devastating I still think it reaches beyond uh, its parts I mean th this is almost something in motion that just right place right time right director and right script you know I read somewhere that this is the script and um, the Kelly Masterson was the guy that wrote it and ironically enough he also wrote Snowpiercer I have that in my notes I definitely want to bring that up <laughs> yeah yeah ironic huh because when I loved when I didn't but I read somewhere that film students actually use this script as, a, as an example and a template for how to write this kind of film. So I don't want to leave out the script either. I think that's the backbone here. Absolutely. And uh, do you think, I, I mean, how important uh, along with the script is the use of the, the multi-strand narrative? Extremely. To me, it's extremely important. And I was thinking about this when you posed this question to me. Um, because it's very obvious, it's very non-linear, right? Um, but I think it's very important to this film, because this is not a, a feel-good movie. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't bring something happier to your show, but I wanted to talk about this because also the technical, the technical barrier, how it's constructed. The non-linear focus and the multi-strand narrative create chaos. It's, it's not in line, it's not in sequence, it's not in order. There's a scene in this movie where Hoffman picks up a bowl of rocks and just lets them fall on the floor. And you can hear him crashing down on this glass, this glass table, actually. And that's almost like the scene in the film, how this movie is constructed. It's just pieces falling at you. And it's complete chaos. It's complete turmoil. And, uh, you know, I think that the non-linear and the multi-strand narrative that it hinges on really propels it. Uh, the dread, the emotion is felt across the board. And in every scene... Um, because of it. It's incredibly balanced and everyone's on the block. Every character is in disarray. What I liked best about it was that the faceless dread, the tension, it's palatable. Um, and I think that when you have so much going on in different directions and you just get a sense of just time and space being distorted like this and you don't know who to focus on, who has it worse, whose story is it really? What rises to the top is that the story and the main character is the doom is the glow that actually became a palatable character to me I, you could almost see it so I think that when the focus isn't so much on the character but just the doom I think that's uh, even more powerful and that, that's what this film does 
That's a really interesting point because it was something I was considering today when I was taking my notes. I was kind of like, who, who is our guy? Who, who are we latching onto? Whose story is this? Because I mean, you know, usually you would you'd pick the most likable person or the person who gets the most amount of screen time. But there's there's not really that in this film. I mean, everybody's kind of despicable in one way or another. So I mean, yeah. you, you raise a very interesting point that it's more of a. I guess a study of um, of doom and this 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 kind of tragedy of the of the whole story. Yeah, I mean the emotion is actually a live character to this. I mean it's the it's the it's the dread story. The dread is the main protagonist here. <laughs> it's the dread story. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is just watching it. It's a, the, the sort of classic Greek tragedy. Like we all know it's going to end very very badly, but we're just happy to kind of drift along as it as it happens, despite. The main characters thinking that they're they're untouchable and it's all going to be flawless. It doesn't just doesn't really pan out that way. No, it doesn't. You know what's interesting too, Michael? Recently, someone asked me. It was recently, maybe several months ago. Name some great horror films. We get into a horror film discussion. Do you know I put this up there on the list and people said I was nuts? And I said, Well, no. This is a horror movie. In horror films, we see monsters, goblins, ghouls, devils, whatever, come and they destroy the flesh. They destroy the person. There's a monster in this film, and it's tearing these people apart from the inside out. You can't see it. But there's a definitive force at work against these people. And uh, in that regard, I give a lot of credence to this film, too, because it crosses boundaries. I could almost call this a horror movie with a legitimate monster in it. It's a, a really, really interesting point. It's uh, not something that I, I can honestly say I considered, but... Uh... I'm also not the expert on this film, so I'm I'm happy to take you at your at your word for that. Well, I just know that uh, a horror film is supposed to leave you horrified. There were many times here I was horrified. <laughs> it certainly did. I mean, for me watching it, I mean, I'm a massive fan of the Coen Brothers, and watching this film, I definitely got some elements to um, Fargo. There was uh, definitely yeah. some comparisons that came up, and you know, I. As I said, you've seen this film a lot more than I have, and I don't know if that's a bit of an obvious assessment to make, but particularly kind of with the the break-in scene. I mean, there's a kind of a black comedy to it uh, with Bobby's ineptitude kind of breaking in, and that's very similar to the the way the kidnapping in Fargo pans out. You kind of have Andy, who's in over his head, and he's hiring these people to commit the crime, just like uh, Jerry Lundegaard did in Fargo. And and obviously, there's less emphasis on the comedy in in this. There's maybe some pitch black humor in here, but for the most part, as you say, it's about the doom and it's about the uh, yeah. the, the tragedy. I mean, I, I I just it was just a, a comparison that I like to make, being such a big um, Coen Brothers fan. That is a great comparison. You know what? I probably should have put in my director's list as well. Big Coen Brothers fan. And yeah, I could actually see them uh, stepping in for LeMay and delivering a pretty good movie uh, like he did here too. I think that would be a a director or a set of directors who could could hold up this weight of this material. Real quick, you talked about the comedy element. I've never thought about that in this film, but looking back now, I guess if there's a comedy element to it, it would be Hawk in the wig. Yeah. That awful wig and mustache. I guess that's a comic relief to the film, yeah. It's just the attempt, like, it's it's just something so ridiculous in something that is so serious that it just, you know, he looks, I mean, when he was done up in the wig, he looked as if he, he looked a little bit like Jesse Eisenberg for me with a false moustache on. So it was, 
I, I found it. I find it ridiculous. And as you pointed out yourself, uh, you know, it's a ridiculous plan to begin with. Like it was, it was only ever going to end in tragedy. And I think there is kind of a, a comedy to think that they could they could pull it off and, and it all go smoothly and we they'd all live happily ever after. But um, well, it was, it was kind of a legit plan, though. I mean, it's like uh, Hoffman played Andy. He kind of had his his poop in a group with it. He thought he had planned out. You know, the old lady's going to be working this day. You know, I can't go. They're going to know me. You go rent a car. I mean, Hawk really screwed this thing up. <laughs> he did. He sure did. Let's let's talk a little bit more about the actors in it. Then, do you think that this it's fair to say that this goes amongst one of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's best performances? For me, it does. It's hard to say though, isn't it? When you talk about an actor like that, yeah, I mean, it's like everything he did was one big body of work. <laughs> and do you think um, that? that it was kind of the Lumet effect. He he got the got a lot out of him. I mean, one that really struck me is the scene where and and we can talk about spoilers on this show. It's reveal you know uh, his wife Gina reveals that she's having an affair with with Hank, and yeah. you're just waiting. You're waiting for him to explode. You're waiting for him to tear the place apart. And he does. He does trash the room, but it's just it's so half-assed like he does he, you know as you say he, he kind of scatters the stones on the floor and things, but it's just he's just going through the motions it's just it's it, it's such a bizarre choice but it's it's yeah. just it's incredible yeah there's a lot of disarming things in this film I mean like you you're waiting like okay this guy's gonna go 50 500 pound gorilla you know he's gonna go nuts but he almost has to just force himself to pretend like he's upset this is the man who has nothing left in tank. And that becomes frightening. Because now you have someone who has nothing to lose. Do you realize that I've been having an affair? What's that supposed to mean? It means I've been fucking another guy. Every Thursday, me and your brother, Hank, we get together and we fuck. Not only that, he loves me. And he still finds me attractive. All the time. Not just on vacation. Hank. Yeah, Hank. Are you going to say anything? Are you gonna get angry? Whoa! Where are you gonna go? I was just gonna go to my mother's. How are you gonna get there? Which is, which is a lack of emotion. 
that's full of it. And that's a scene I think that highlights that, yeah. And then Albert Finney turns into one of the most unexpected kind of vigilante heroes, I suppose. And he, he is relentless in like his, his quest to kind of hunt down those responsible for the, the death of his wife. Yeah, he seemed a little unhinged, too. And, and you really get the sense that, I wouldn't say you get sympathy for Hoffman's character. But after you get to know Finney, you realize that this guy probably instilled a lot of bad self-esteem in his sons. He probably was not a great father. Mm-hmm. And he kind of brings that up to it at one scene in particular. But I didn't like his character. I think that gave me a nice backdrop into how these sons turn out like that. And um, that's just another smart angle played here. They gave you just enough to have a, a tad bit of sympathy for these two, as seen through the father-son relationships that Finney brought in. You talk about Relentless, though. Yeah, and he was unhinged. Like, for example, when he leaves the cop station, which I felt bad for him. You know, he's sitting on a bench for hours getting nowhere. And he decides he's just going to ram his car into the cop car. Yeah. You know, and then just drive off. I mean, he's hanging by a thread, too. The scenes where he's grieving are heartbreaking. But, yeah, I mean, the the switch that he makes, you get the feeling that, you know, he, he kind of had that in him all along. And, uh, yeah, I agree with you. It, it doesn't give you much, but you can you can certainly see that he, he wasn't the greatest father in the world. There's one scene, too, where that's really bubbling to the surface. And um, when I think about standout scenes as far as acting in this goes. There's a scene at the picnic table in the back after the wife's funeral when they finally decide they're going to address these issues between them. And it ends with a massive slap across Hoffman's face. I'm sorry. I wasn't able to be the father you wanted. But I guess I wanted you to be better than me. And I thought that if I push you It may not mean anything to you, but I want you to know that I really do love you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't able to be the son you wanted. You did the best you could. Still, yeah. And I just seem to still like Hank. He's a lot more of a fuck-up than I was. He was a baby. Yeah. He needed us more. Yeah, he needed you more. He sure wasn't his cute looks, his puppiness. You were the first. The first I was as it, Rafa. Yeah, so I'm told. You know, the four of you, I... Never felt like I was part of the club. Beautiful birds of a feather. You sure I'm your son? I mean, I I feel like we could go on and on. I mean, to we haven't even touched on Marissa Tomei. I mean, she's terrific in it as well. It's a well playing the brothers off against each other. Really, really, really strong from her as well. I mean, did you feel like she was, uh, you know, if anybody gets out of this movie, I mean, we're talking across the board, everybody's ruined at the end of this film. She's the only one that really kind of gets away, right? I mean, she's she's going to get off clean. I mean, she's the only one that can actually start over and move on. So I guess 
in a way, she's kind of, I wouldn't say the innocent in this film because she's far from it. When, 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 one, is, when one is portrayed as the innocent of the film, you're sleeping with both brothers. You have a dark, sinister situation mm-hmm. here. But I also think you could, I mean, she's she's the motivating factor for both of them to do what they do for to an extent. I mean, Hank yeah. wants to run away with her and Andy has the pressure to, to take her back to Rio. So, I mean, she's kind of the, the catalyst for why they need money. I know there's other reasons to it as well, but there's there's that kind of lurking in the background. I couldn't figure her out, Michael, to be honest with you. I didn't know at the end, uh, I think I had everybody hashed out as far as what motivated them and how I felt about them. She's a bit of an enigma in this film. I don't know if she's someone I should feel, feel sympathetic for, or if she's somehow just a greedy, nasty person who has no regard for her husband or the family. <laughs> I think you should trust trust your gut on it and uh, don't feel sorry for any of them. Okay, well, you know what I'll tell you? She sure comes into this movie with a bang, doesn't she? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> well, literally, yes. All right, so... We've we've covered kind of the multi-strand side of it. We've talked about Lumet's role in all of this. I mean, and it's clearly a film that's affected you a lot. And I want to make sure that you get the chance to really sell it because I'm I know you know there's a lot on the line. A place in the Hall of Fame. That's where all all the big films want to be. So what what why should this film go into the Hall of Fame? What makes it such a standout? Well, uh, you know, it is an odd choice to to bring into your show and talk about Hall of Fame because. It was nominated for a lot of awards and, and various circuits. It didn't get a lot of Oscar praise. But it's a film that is vastly talked about. I mean, even to this day, you'll be surprised how many people put this on their top ten films of all time. I'm one of them. I'm, I'm going to tell you this is one of my top films of all time. Once again, let's talk about how it affects me. Um, Sidney Lemay, I left him off my top director's list because we're talking about him already. He's on my list. I'm just going to say that. Sure thing. When I was a kid, I watched one of his other great films called Death Trap with Christopher Reeve and Michael Caine. I walked out of there 10 years old, and that was one of the first films that made me know who the director was. One of the first directors I ever took notice of was Sidney Lumet. Dog Day Afternoon. I remember thinking again, I was very Oh yeah! Oh I mean, yeah! He comes into he comes into the movie and he almost kicks the door open and says, 
I'll be the next big actor that you'll love. At least for me, Desi Tomei. I think she's fantastic from the wrestler to this to hell Seinfeld. I've always been a fan of hers. <laughs> I, I even like Hawk. I like Hawk a lot. I really liked him in Boyhood. I liked him in Dead Poet Society. Peter Weir, another great director, by the way. Look at the parts that are in this thing and look at the hands that took the parts, talking about LeMay here, and crafted this. When they set out to make this movie, they set out to make something that would make you cringe, that would make you feel, that would make you fearful, and probably make you be pretty happy with your life the way it is. It punches above its weight. It's master craft filmmaking. It's one that, going into 10 years later, is still talked about. There are many people who respect the script and the pieces in motion here. I think this is a great piece of cinema. I think it's one of the most vastly underrated films in terms of its, in terms of its impact on the audience. Because when I walked out of that theater, I also went over and had coffee with some guys I didn't know and they're talking about the film. They felt the same way that I did. And um, it's a shame most pe more people don't know about this. But hopefully, uh, you know, more people do as time goes on. I know it's talked about here and there. Um, more and more, it seems like. To me, it's a, it's a pantheon film. I, I would suggest anybody to watch this. I would recommend it. It's a great piece of work. That was a really, really passionate plea for its inclusion into the Hall of Fame, Mike. I have to say, I'm very, very impressed with how passionately you spoke about it. I mean, just looking back, and I, I kind of take notes as my guest talk, just to kind of to draw back on as we go from this. And, you know, you, you talk about the effect it's had on you. And, you know, I think you use the term, it's drilled in deep, which I think is, uh, when you get down to the nuts and bolts, what I'm really looking for, for the Hall of Fame, when I have guests on, I'm looking for them to talk about a film that is as you put it, drilled in deep. I think you also kind of, you mentioned the term time capsule quality and I made a note of that and I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it and I, I feel like in your closing statement you really kind of hit on what you meant by that in referring to the work of Sidney LeMay and again, you've, you've put in that personal connection being one of the first directors that kind of made you sit up and begin and begin to take notice of cinema and a director's work and I think it's interesting, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, you could argue all day until the t cows come home, what is his best film? I mean, we've talked about what he's got on his, what he's got on his resume. And it's, uh, you know, it's an argument to always have. But I think you, you, you so wonderfully put it, you, you could point to this film as an example of what made him such a great director. And it kind of signifies his best work. So even which I think kind of cuts right through that argument. So you can draw a line under the discussion of whether or not it's his best film or not, but it points out to so many things that made him such a great director. So I think yeah. that that's just a terrific point to be made in terms of, you know, the pieces of it as well. You know, Michael Shannon, I absolutely love him. We'll talk about him all day, any day. Hoffman, of course. And, and we, I, I look at the Hall of Fame list and I'm very, very proud of the films we have on there. And we have... You know, when I've had people come on and make cases for things like Jaws and for like Alien, I've, I've often told them, you have your work cut out for you because everybody knows this film. This film doesn't need to be in the Hall of Fame. Whereas you've come on and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, it's a film I'd heard of, but I'd never, never, never seen before I knew we were going to have this discussion for it. So as a way to increase awareness, I think that's exactly, it's exactly the sort of film we should be putting into the Hall of Fame. So... Michael, I'm delighted to say that uh, I, I'm pleased to induct Before the Devil Knows You're Dead 
as the 17th film, the 18th film, I do beg your pardon, into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. So congratulations to you, for, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I am very thrilled about that. I was hoping that it would squeak its way in there. Well, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't go with my second choice, which was The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we, we can have you back on in a couple of weeks' time to talk about that. I've only seen the sequel, so I've been looking for an excuse to go back and see the first film. I've never seen this. I'm just joking. <laughs> I thought I was, I was oh, yeah, me too. certainty by being absurd. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was just kidding about The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, too. I... Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know how quickly, quickly you were able to back me up on that, though. <laughs> Well, Michael, it was perhaps disappointing Attack of the Rotten Tomatoes score aside. I would say it's been a massively successful uh, debut onto the Hi-Hat Film podcast. And uh, just want to thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk about this film. And thank you so much for kind of putting me onto it. I, I had a blast watching it and I look forward to in the years to come returning to it. And I'm sure every time I do, I'm going to find more and more things to really admire and appreciate about the film. Well, I really appreciate you saying all that. And thanks for letting me bring a film like this up there because I thought, well... I want to bring something that's a different flavor, kind of like cilantro. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody knows exactly how that tastes, but my God, yeah, we had to try it once. <laughs> and uh, that's what this film is. It's a different spice. It's a different aftertaste. It's a different burn. But uh, for an 83-year-old Sidney, Sidney LeMay, gather the pieces he did and pull out something that kicked my ass like this film did. Bravo to it. And thank you for letting it into the, the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. It's a it's a very exclusive list, but it, it made the cut, and you will forever go down as a successful submitter in that. So uh, congratulations to you. And for, just forget about the entire Rotten Tomatoes thing. This is a redemption for that. I completely failed. I was a miserable, miserable failure in the game. <laughs> but this redeems it. This redeems it a bit. Absolutely. Well, look, Michael, as we talked about, you host the Q Filmcast, uh, cover a great, a vast array of films. You guys have a, a really great chemistry. I really love all the different opinions that you guys throw on there. So it's a terrific show, and I definitely encourage uh, all, all of my listeners, although I'm sure I have a fraction of your listenership, but for any of those that, that listen to this show and not yours, I would recommend that they, they, get, they check it out. Well, listen, I, I will champion your show each and every time, and I told you this once before. I rifle through a lot of shows, and look, anybody who puts a show out, puts the work into it, they're all good. Everybody deserves a nod. Some rise to the top. Yours did. I remember distinctly listening to your to your podcast, and you were revealing you know, somebody who was a female girl on there. You talked about Stand By Me. We did, yep. It was enough to where I said, oh, I, I hope I get to stay in the car a little longer, because I want to finish this. This concept is great. This host is fantastic. He sounds like Michael Fassbender. He's probably more... <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, You're a fantastic host. And to let me on your show to participate with you is a real honor. You're you're, you're great, really. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. What you can't tell, obviously, uh, over the line is I I do my shows. I wear a massive papier-mâché head while I I do the show in in the, the style of Frank. So... Oh, I I can tell it. You have a little fan built into your your mask? (laughs) Yep, yep, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, by the way, I must confess, I actually do wear uh, traveling pants when I do this. <laughs> Thank you for admitting that. Yes. Well, look, Michael, it was great having you on. Thanks very much, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have you on again, hopefully, sometime in the future. Nothing but love to you, man, over there in Edinburgh, sister city of Nashville, Tennessee. You can go to our, uh, one, one last quick plug, Absolutely. Q-Filmcast.net. You can uh, revisit, well, you basically, 
Mm-hmm. So, many more coming. Fantastic. All right, well, thanks very much, Michael. We'll talk to you later, Michael. Thanks again. The Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. And I'm sick of the Hi-Hat! Another bumper episode is in the books and we have our 17th entry into the Hi-Hat Hall of Fame. Congrats to Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which joins... Big breath for this. The Big Lebowski, Princess Mononoke, Theatre of Blood, Fight Club, Kill List, Stand By Me, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Jaws, Koyanaskatsi, Total Recall, Sideways, The Raid, Alien, Cinema Paradiso, The Wages of Fear, and There Will Be Blood. It's an eclectic and ever-growing list of some very fine films indeed. Big thanks to Michael again for taking the time to prepare such a convincing argument. Be sure to check out the Q Filmcast over on iTunes. If you'd like to be on the show to submit a film for the Hall of Fame, send me an email at hihatfilmreview at gmail.com. You can also join in the fun and games over on the Hi-Hat Film Podcast Facebook page. And you can also follow the show on Twitter on the brand spanking new Twitter handle, at hihatfilmpod. That's going to do it for this week. I'll leave you with the final words of Guy Pierce's Leonard in Memento. Now, where was I? Give me my 20,000 how bad things can get and how quick they can get that way well they can get a whole lot worse so we're not going to fight anymore we're going to pull together and we're going to find a way to get out of here first we're going to seal off this room.